Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show, we have Rob Reed. He's a novelist and former high-tech CEO. This is Technotopia. Technotopia is brought to you by Happy Fun Corp. Happy Fun Corp is a design-driven technology company in Brooklyn, New York, that specializes in building mobile and web applications for startups and Fortune 500 companies. Whether it's a new mobile or web application that will help people experience the internet in a fun new way, or software that will interface with a new piece of top-secret hardware, Happy Fun Corp is always up to the challenge. Big or small, Happy Fun Corp loves building software and loves working with great people. Come build with them. HappyFunCorp.com Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show we have novelist... Rob Reed and Rob, you were the also a CEO as well. Why don't you describe your your storied and, and varied career? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you kindly. Um, I founded a company called Listen.com dot com mm-hmm. uh, in San Francisco, and we created the Rhapsody Music Service, uh, which was actually the first music service to get full catalog licenses from all the major record labels, even before Apple actually. So we you, did, very you, didn't, early. you didn't invent radio on the internet, right? I, I did not, but I, <laughs> I was contacted by many patent holders who seemed to think that they had, uh, and invited people who felt they invented the notion of music and sound and everything else on the internet. So okay. that's a whole other topic. But um, we, yeah, so we were the first people to get all those licenses, and we basically uh, created the model that we all now know so well through Spotify and others of unlimited streaming music uh, service. Okay, so this is actually interesting. So now... So you, you did that for a number of years, and now you're, yes. actually, now you're actually writing fiction. I am. It's a, a pretty unusual pivot, and I'm sure there have been other tech founders who have gone on to write fiction as opposed to nonfiction. There's a lot of founders who have gone on to write all kinds of things in the nonfiction domain. But I've never met another founder who writes you know, novels with a big publisher now. It's pretty, uh, it's, it's a weird one. I'm sure they're out there. We, we should start a support group. Yeah, if somebody exactly. out there is listening. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, I feel like I'm very close to that. I would like to be, I would like to be, well, first I got to be a founder yep. and then I can be, well, I'm a writer first. Well, I was a tech yep. guy first and I'm a writer and then I'm, uh, I'm trying to be a founder now and then I want to be a fiction writer. So I think we should do some kind of, we should write a fiction, a nonfiction book about how to do that. That way we can yes, help the indeed. world. A how-to, a giant how-to would be a huge market. <laughs> what, what's the difference between being a tech CEO and being a fiction writer? Um, you know, kind of, it's funny, uh, kind of everything and nothing. Um, I just put a post up on Medium, actually, in which I talked about that. And I think if you had asked me this question 20 years ago, uh, I would say absolutely nothing. And now I say everything and nothing. And the reason is... Um, very engaged authors, particularly ones who are new and didn't develop a huge audience back in the physical era, um, are pretty much, we're pretty much the CEOs of teeny little startups because it's incumbent on us, even with a major publisher like Random House and with the biggest publisher in the world. Um, it's very incumbent upon us to do all the things that a startup does to try to get our names out there and to, you know, figure out SEO and to figure out lead gen and, you know, to talk to people like you and to set all that stuff up. I mean, we are, when a book comes out, particularly a work of fiction that doesn't have a natural, you know, kind of gravitational home in the world of blogging outside of fiction blogs, which are relatively few and far between, you really have to hustle like a CEO. So yeah, I'm, I am the CEO of a, of after on, which is the title of my novel, which came out Mm -hmm. yesterday. So basically the CEO of the world's tiniest uh, internet startup. I'm sure there are smaller ones. I think I think I've I think I've met some of those uh, the tiny tiniest ones, which is just some guy who goes to a uh, goes to a uh, uh, 
a dinner party and just talks about something that he wants to do in the future. You've actually pulled it off. So you're, <laughs> I have pulled it so off. You're, yeah. so you're one, you're at least one or two steps ahead of the, the tiniest, uh, the tiniest one. All right. So you've seen, you've seen the Valley, you've seen SF from, uh, basically it's inception, I guess you could say yeah. in the two thousands. Um, even earlier, I, I became a, an internet full timer in 1994, mm-hmm. uh, roughly before Netscape even launched the Mosaic browser. Uh, so it was it, I was working at a, a big computer company, which at the time was very hot, and now uh, basically doesn't exist. Called Silicon Graphics, and our founder mm-hmm. Jim Clark took off to co-found Netscape with Mark Andreessen, and so our company became very internet savvy very very early as a result of the departure of the founder and started up an internet group and I was right out of school and really more by luck than anything else I landed in this teeny group that was was focused on and dedicated to the world wide web in 1994 and there were probably there might have been one or two other groups like us across all the large high tech companies so I've yeah um, we'd, we'd have these you know equivalents of powerpoint slides is we'd argue one of these days we believe that most fortune 500 companies will have a website and stuff like that <laughs> so ancient ancient stuff so so this is actually interesting i want to i wanted to discuss this because no, nobody's really addressing this so you were there you were there at the creation i was at carnegie mellon during the creation so i had mm. a, i had a i had email addresses and i had i was building web pages at that point too we had, i think we had the first version of active server, active server pages that microsoft ever made uh, oh, somebody wow. sent it to us, and we were we were programming in that. And I made a, I made an early content management system, and I was like, in the future, the internet's going to be a really great. So we looked at, at a world that was forming, yeah, and we created it in our own image. Now, mm-hmm. does that image, that image of, I believe that we saw this world as sort of a, a sort of like an interactive TV, because that's what we knew. Mm-hmm. If, if we're going to get all David Foster Wallace about this thing, the medium here is that we we saw the internet as a TV station that let us that let us broadcast to the world. Is that still true? Is the next generation of folks uh, coming up? Are they coming up in a different world? Will will all the things that we laid down early on in ninety three ninety four still be applicable in twenty 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 forty? Well, I kind of feel like it's been ripped up and recreated. It's ripped up and recreated on an ongoing basis, but I feel there's been at least three overwhelmingly distinctive eras. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I wish I could feel that I had sort of the authorship role of a, you know, a founder. I mean, I'm not Al Gore. I didn't found the internet, but you know, yeah, we, you and I, and a handful of other people were there very, very early on. And I think we did things as a, as a collective clearly did things. And particularly people at places like Netscape and Yahoo, the first really successful commercial companies did things that were highly, highly foundational. But I, I think that the, the, the rate of rip up, tear down, add, something entirely new is fast enough that although you could do some archaeology and certainly see the roots of all that was done in the in the mid and even into the later 90s i think there is such an overwhelming percentage of time uh, and therefore user experience is being spent in environments and on activities applications that simply didn't even come close to existing back then. I mean, you know, there's a very, very high double-digit percentage of all internet time 
is spent on Facebook, is spent on Netflix, is spent mm-hmm. on things, you know, and a social network back then, we, we could have imagined Netflix, and you're right, I think that that was one thing that was then in the deep future that people saw fairly accurately. We, you know, there was a notion that like at some point you're gonna be able to click a button and see whatever the hell you want to. It took forever to come along, but that's one of the relatively few things I think that pretty much there was a consensus that this here thing is gonna happen. Um, you know, but <laughs> ride hailing like apps and smartphones, the form that they ended up actually taking and, you know, certainly social media and a lot of the things, you know, a lot of the things really that we called Web 2.0 at the time, that whole thicket of interconnected services, you know, based on, you know, RSS and other other, you know, other protocols like that, that really started coming into their own in uh, 2005, I'd say, mm-hmm. that was a real kind of a reset button. Um, so I think people coming into the web see something that even the most visionary person in those early times really would have struggled to, to envision. Now, one of the great things about having been around back then, I think it, it, it turns a person into a real optimist because mm-hmm. Everybody, it was such a cool era because nobody was in it for the money because there was no money. Um, (laughs) But everybody was in it out of this wild excitement. And I know everybody on my team and everybody that we interfaced with in Silicon Valley. I mean, mean, look, I was right. There couldn't have been even 10 MBAs doing stuff on the Internet in those days. Everybody was so convinced this was going to be so colossal. And we turned out to be right. And we may have been right through sheer luck. I stumbled into it at the right moment, et cetera. But you get this feeling like, man, I, I thought this thing was going to be huge and I was right. And so you end up trusting your gut maybe a little bit more than you should. But you also get this incredible sense of optimism because you've seen something go from a speck to this extraordinary vastness. And I believe fervently, I know that there's a lot of, you know, um, grumpy old geeks out there, but I believe, and non-geeks out there, but I believe fervently that for all of its drawbacks, internet and internet culture have been just brought boundless good to the world and will bring boundless more good to the world. And so I think that, I mean, I was always been optimistic by nature, but I think that that really baked that into my psyche and I'm glad because it's, it's fun being an optimist. Okay. So this is actually interesting. This is an interesting point. I've, I've talked to, I've talked to a number of um, musicians and authors from my, uh, I guess to, to I, I rarely get a kick out of back in the '90s. So I talked to mm-hmm. Mike Doty of Soul Coughing, mm-hmm. uh, my buddy Tony Early. He was one of, one of my teachers, and he pointed out that it was really hard for them to get in. A, to, they really they fought really hard to get an audience, mm-hmm. and once they had that audience, they had that audience forever. So somebody yep. like Mike Doty of Soul Coughing, he can still he can still fill up a fairly fairly large room mm-hmm. uh, just by saying he's going to show up somewhere. Is that is that effect happening? So if I'm a uh, if I'm a young person right now trying to build a web startup, do I have the same uh, do I have the same benefits as we did you did specifically in those in that in that earlier area era uh, of because it's a close knit community everybody wants to help each other everybody tries to figure things out together do I have that right now and will I have that in the future? You know I think that the ratio of um, ambitious entrepreneurs to capital. You know, it's like one of those things that a physicist at some point is going to dis- discover the underpinning rules that drive that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my feeling is it's almost always constant across time and space. And so, um, you know, you go to a, a, a place that has got a teeny Internet culture. And I spent a lot of time um, 
uh, in Cairo. I, I was a Fulbright scholar there. I studied a lot of uh, Arabic. Um, and it's a place I still go back to, even though that was a different phase of my life. And when the internet first came to Egypt on a commercial level and people started getting excited about it, there was a vanishingly small uh, startup community and, you know, compared to Cairo today and compared to certainly the Silicon, Silicon Valley today, mm -hmm. there were virtually, quote unquote, no entrepreneurs, but there was also virtually no capital. And so there was always it was always that scrum. Right. And so back then, yeah, there were far fewer entrepreneurs who were seeking to do things online than today. Uh, but there was proportionately less capital. And I don't, it was hard then. I, I, I think, you know, I mean, if you got a, if you got a a foundational hit at the beginning of an important phase of the internet. Um, and that could happen, you know, in 2006 or seven or whenever mm -hmm. Facebook was founded, or it could happen in 1995. If you're a search engine, you're Yahoo. If you're there when that, that segment is being founded and you manage to get through the aperture and get your capital and you manage to have that lightning in a bottle phenomenon that says you beat the 17 other now forgotten companies who were going for your jugular throughout those early days, then there's a chance for giganticism that rarely exists, right? But those new apertures are constantly opening. Um, I personally think that five of the 10 most gigantic online oriented companies of 15 years hence, or even of 10 years hence, have yet to be founded. Okay. Um, and that's always true. Um, I think in any decade, you'll be able to say five of the next decade's biggies are going to be founded in the next couple handful of years. So, you know, I think that there's, you know, it's, it's markets are efficient, man. And, um, entrepreneurs stampede for whatever dollars are there until it's just like a mosh pit <laughs> and then either more dollars come in or entrepreneurs exit. <laughs> what are the, what are those five new, new companies so people can start building them now? The subsequent companies. Um, yeah. I think there will be, um, you know, I'm not going to probably say anything that's, that's, you know, terribly revelatory, but I think that, that VR is going to be a colossal. I mean, I think they're going to be, um, I, I think most connected people on our, uh, let's say c connected people on average will be spending double digit percentages of their, uh, their waking hours in, in a VR environment within 10 to 15 years. So that mm -hmm. is just bazillions of user hours that need to be monetized, that need to be programmed, that need to have tools built for obviously that need hardware, although that's probably, you know, the least exciting domain because of the cost and inventory and all that other kind of stuff. So that's going to be huge. I think synthetic biology. Now we're getting a little bit outside of clearly the, the digital domain, but every SynBio company is going to be deeply, deeply embedded in the internet, whether it's, you know, simply for marketing and getting their services out there. Um, or I, I think they're going to be deep, deep data hooks between all the companies that have big data stores and the, the people who work with them, um, you know, their customers and their clients and their patients and so forth. So Synbio, um, I think that, um, augmented reality is going to be a sleeper success. It gets, it, it's kind of like, um, VRs in some ways, it feels like a, you know, a, a very small unglamorous brother of VR, but I think that the productivity apps that come up in AR in particular, really going to surprise people. So, you know, AR is another one that I, I see as being pretty big. Um, one that's kind of a joker in the deck, um, that a wild card that could kind of go either way, 
Um, so I, and I don't have a strong opinion about whether it's going to really bear out, but I think if quantum computing takes off and really starts delivering, delivering on what a lot of smart people think is its maximum potential, it's such a radically different uh, software and hardware architecture that I think very, very significant companies are going to be born there. Um, and then, you know, I agree with 99.98% of the prognosticators and definitely believe that machine learning and all that's connected to that is going to be huge as well. Fascinating. Okay. So that's, so I, I, you, you, you hit, you hit it on a, on a few of the things. I'm, I'm glad that you're here because you're basically, you basically, you basically, uh, catalyzed, brought all these things together in, uh, in one place, which is pretty interesting. Um, will you be able to write, uh, novels in oh, 20 yeah. years? You think, you think, yeah. no, you think the novel is gonna, you think we're going to be able to, uh, still read a book when we have, when we have, uh, sex bots attached to us and, 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 and <laughs> VR helmets on? You know, it's going to get tougher and tougher for anybody who creates something that subsists on the attention of other people. I mean, I just wrote uh, my new novel is a long one. It's 547 pages long in an mm -hmm. era of 140 characters. Sure. Right. Um, and, you know, novels have to compete with Facebook and Twitter and Candy Crush and all kinds of things that you know, authors didn't used to compete with. It used to be, I mean, in, but I'm sure if you talk to a novelist in, you know, let's say 1995, they'd be howling about television. And if you talk to an author in 1935, they'd be howling about radio. And if you talk mm -hmm. to an author in 1905, they'd be howling about illiteracy. So, um, it's incumbent on all creatives to create, um, a, a you know, a compelling, um, media experience that people are going to elect to in enter, uh, particularly if you're writing fiction, nobody has to read fiction for their job. So nonfiction, obviously, whether it's, you know, narrative, uh, video, narrative, audio, narrative writing is, has probably got a higher floor, I'd say, mm -hmm. but yeah, th th there, there is something that, um, the fact that the novel has survived as long as it has, and probably I really should check the statistics and I'll bet random house has got them, but, um, you know, probably is, are, are reaching about as many neurons as they ever have, um, okay. on is, is a pretty good sign. And we benefit from a lot of the things that the internet bring too. I mean, the, the, the fact that there is zero friction, um, from uh, somebody getting a notion in their head that like, wow, I might want to read that book to having it on their device, mm -hmm. um, has recaptured all kinds of commerce that was probably, momentarily pregnant in a consumer's mind, but never got fulfilled because by the time they were next at the shopping center or, you know, they had forgotten it or mm -hmm. as intrigued as they were by book X, it wasn't worth a 37 minute errand. You know, that recaptures a lot of de demand. And, um, you know, publishing has actually been very, very steady. It's not exploding in terms of growth, but it's been very, very steady, um, over the past couple decades. Although, um, I wrote my first book in 1990. Two, uh, anybody in publishing at any given year will tell you that the world is ending. <laughs> and they'll tell you that now. They certainly howled it in 1992 and every year in between. And I'm sure they'll be howling it in 20 years. That's excellent. I mean, the bomb thrower in me says, "Let's let's let Random House burn down." But uh, but the uh, but the lover of the lover of I guess curated content uh, knows that the, the requirement is there. So you wrote you wrote 500 pages. This is actually an interesting point. We were, I was thinking a little bit about deep work recently. Mm -hmm. How does how do our brains, Gen X, internet addled, completely futzed brains, how can we 
do what you did? How can we sit down and write a book? What's give give us just a few things before we close out. A few ways mm -hmm. that you've that you've either either avoided the the traps that we all fall into, or have have, uh, have prevented them by by actively. It has to be, I think, it, it, it helps a great deal if it's your guilty pleasure. Mm -hmm. If you really love to write and it's the thing you do when you should be doing other things. Like if it is your Dove bar rather than your broccoli. And I think mm -hmm. um, a lot of people like the idea of having written more than they like the process of writing. And fundamentally, if you don't adore it, um, you're, you're never going to be able to get through that process. And so I'll give you a fun example. When I was running Rhapsody, uh, I found it very stressful and I came up with this mechanism of therapy. And what I would do is, uh, when I was done with all my email and my managerial, this is and that's, and it's two 30 in the morning and I'm exhausted and about to go to sleep. I would get onto Amazon and, uh, this was before the playful Amazon review was a literary genre. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I created this persona, a guy named Charles Henry Higginsworth the third from Boston, <laughs> Massachusetts, who was a real character. And he was 20 years older than me. And he was from this faded aristocratic family from Boston. And he lived in this crumbling house on Beacon Hill that was once very grand, but he doesn't have money for heating oil anymore because, you know, he went to Harvard and studied the classics and he just has no marketable skills. And so he would get on uh, to Amazon and start reviewing a completely random product. And then about a third of the way into it, he'd do a 180 and start complaining about his life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so this was like my outlet and it was writing fiction. I didn't realize it at the time, but an autobiography emerged. I almost became a top thousand reviewer on Amazon, which God, that would have <laughs> been so cool, but that was my guilty pleasure. And all these years later, um, so that I wrote a lot of nonfiction. I wrote a cover story for wired. I did all kinds of stuff online while I was being an entrepreneur. I was a VC for a period of time, all that time. I always wrote when I could. And then I made the pivot to fiction, which is a tough thing to do. And my last book barely snuck onto the New York Times bestseller list. And so Random House said, you can keep writing if you like. Um, and with this novel, I realized there was a place for Charles Henry Higginsworth in it. So 18 of those Amazon reviews that I posted to the internet like 15 years ago are now integrated with my novel and they're still online, which is kind of fun. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, that was to me, I guess, in retrospect, a signal. It was my guilty pleasure. It was the thing that I was doing when I really should have been doing other things. And then when I got to the point where I, you know, I got a, you know, a publishing contract in an advance and I could do it full time. It was real easy to just fall into that rabbit hole and let have 15 hours go by and not even realize that it happened. I think so okay. there you got it. You got to dig it. You know, and it's got to be something that doesn't just call to you, but screams at you. Um, I probably put 7,500 hours into writing this novel. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't you, believe me. You don't do it for the money. <laughs> it's it's a bad idea to do this stuff for the money. <laughs> All right, sounds good to me. Uh, where? Which? Uh, tell us about the book. Where can we get it now? Uh, it just came out on August 1st, right? Yep. It just came out on August 1st. It's um, in bookstores everywhere. Um, it's um, uh, I believe on digital devices throughout the world, but it's bookstores and libraries throughout the United States. Um, and it's the tale. It's it's um, it's set in present day San Francisco. It's the tale of an imaginary startup. 
Um, so it's, it's my beat. It's a world I know extremely well. It represents, um, you know, the entrepreneurial lifestyle and the interplay between capital and startup ideas and technology, I believe extremely accurately and very vividly, but also playfully. There's a strong playful dimension to the book. Um, it's the tale of a diabolical social media company that kind of embodies everything that's wrong with social media, maybe dialed up by about 20%. So it's, you know, it's a little satirical, um, but definitely not farcical. And contrary is a little bit of a spoiler, but you see it coming hundreds of pages off, so it's not. Um, <laughs> it, basically, the social network attains consciousness uh, by dint of quantum computing, something that we talked about before. And I actually spent a lot of time talking to scientists and technologists about the underpinning neuroscience of consciousness, about quantum computing, about where a digital consciousness might arise from. So it's very, very grounded in our present understanding of these things. Like I said, it's set in present day San Francisco. And, and then rather than going all Terminator and trying to kill us all, uh, the social network basically takes on its character from that which it is, which is a social network. And it basically becomes a hyper-intelligent, super-empowered 14-year-old brat. And um, a certain amount of hilarity does ensue because there is a significant playful dimension to the book. But it is at the same time a very, very serious rumination and examination of artificial superintelligence risk, which some of the smartest people in our society, from Bill Gates to Elon Musk to Stephen Hawking, um, have been quite strident um, about the fact that it is a risk. It's it's not doom necessarily, but it's something we need to think about a lot. I get deep into that. Um, I get deep into the potentially negative consequences about a number of things that I'm personally wildly uh, optimistic about. I get deep into synthetic biology and what could go wrong with it, even though I personally think um, far more will go right. Some terrible things could go wrong, and I think it's incumbent on storytellers in any era to to paint realistic pictures of the, few, the, of the futures we do not want to inhabit and make them compelling enough that a lot of people pay attention and it gets into their minds and they start thinking about, you know, how can we prevent the bad stuff from happening. So the really glittering, wonderful future, which we should inherit and that our children should inherit will actually come about. So the book is at simultaneously, um, quite ominous and, <laughs> but also at the same time, it's quite optimistic. Beautiful. So the book is after on a novel of Silicon Valley, uh, author Rob Reed. Thank you for joining us on Technotopia. Thank you so much for having me. And we will see you next week. Technotopia is brought to you by Typewriter. Typewriter is your on-demand editor, and their amazing team of writers will make your book chapter, blog post, or email shine. Typewriter editors come from places like TechCrunch, Gizmodo, and the New York Times, and they offer low bulk rates for longer work. Check it out at typewriter.plus. That's typewriter.plus.